Good morning and welcome. On this Father's Day, let us honor our Heavenly Father by delighting to be called his sons and daughters, redeemed and restored through Jesus Christ alone and sealed by his Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance that we have in him. May we treasure who we are as his children, as the core of who we are as people. Psalm 100 says, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. Let's stand and praise him today.
I know that as a church member, you have heard of the concept of grace. And I know that we all believe that grace is this beautiful, powerful thing that the Lord has extended to us that sometimes he's so and so good that it doesn't make any sense. It's one of those things that is so beautiful, so perfect, so amazing that it's sometimes too good to be true. Isn't that true? I mean, even when we think about the grace uh, that the Lord has extended, a grace that never goes away, a grace that cannot be taken from you, a grace that is so powerful that guarantees that the love of God cannot be taken away from you if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. It's a crazy, radical faith grace. But for some reason, as believers, even believers, sometimes we think that the way we change is by addressing other things instead of reminding ourselves time and time again of the grace of God. See, I think that in this room this morning, those of us that are uh, looking at the service online, I think that sometimes we think that the way to change, it's either by pride or by fear. What I mean by that is that sometimes we think that the way to change is by us encouraging one another to be better, to dream big, to accomplish things. Because if we do that, if we have that, then we will change. You know what's the problem with pride, though? That it changes you just for a short period of time. Because the moment you are not inspired anymore, the moment you cannot accomplish the things that you want to accomplish, the moment that you find that you're not all that, then you stop changing. The other approach then is to be changed by fear. Meaning that if you don't do this, things will go well. That if you don't do this, then you were really going to experience peace. That if you don't do this, then everything is going to be okay. The problem with that approach is that it's also temporary because the moment you lose that fear, the moment you stop changing. Actually, if anything, you go back to whatever you were before. So I don't think that's how Christians ought to change. Not by pride and not by fear. I think that the Bible makes it clear that the only way can anybody permanently, gradually change is by the grace of God. Why? Because it is when we think about the grace of God that we remember the love of God. No one is changed but anything but the love of God. And this is when the Bible talks about communion. Some theologians will call it means of grace. This is how we remember and preach to ourselves time and time again that we have received the grace of God displayed in Jesus Christ by his atoning work. Because when we get that, not only we get the concept of grace, but we get the concept of love. So my question to you today is, are you being transformed by the grace and the love of God? And, the, and if you're not, this is precisely part of the reason why we have to celebrate communion. So we see it. So we taste it. So we remember it. So we experience it. Amen? So this celebration is for those of us that are Christian already. If you're not there yet... I'm inviting you to consider this and surrender your life to Jesus. And when you do that, then you can participate. 
Now, as a way to remind ourselves of how powerful is the grace of God and the love of God, we want to recite the Apostles' Creed together. And I'm going to put it on the screen. We start together, and then you keep on reading. Amen? This is the Apostles' Creed. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So I'm going to ask you, please take a few seconds between you and the Holy Spirit and simply ask this question. Do I really believe everything that I just confessed? Am I being changed by the grace and the love of God? And if you find anything there, just repent. Ask for forgiveness and receive forgiveness. Let's do that. If you have your cup, I'm going to ask you to please remove the side of the cup where you find the bread. And the Bible tells us that on the night when he was betrayed, Jesus, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You may participate. Now, you may remove the other side of the cup. And the Bible tells us that Jesus also took the cup, and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. You may participate. Heavenly Father, to believe that you have loved us unconditionally and that the grace of God is a gift and that we are, we are changed by internalizing more and more your grace and your love is so good and yet so hard to believe. 
So, Lord, just as these elements enter into our system, may the good news of the gospel displayed in Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace, like the Bible calls it, enter into our system, enter into our hearts, enter into our minds, move our affections, and help us believe. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus and the churches. Let's stand and respond to communion. We need no other argument or plea. It's enough that Jesus has died for each of us.
As we continue in an attitude of worship, I'm going to ask the ushers to please come to the front. This is a part of our worship service in which we are uh, giving back to God some of what He has given us as a sign of adoration, as a sign of gratitude, and as a sign of trust. If you're visiting for the first time, please do not feel obligated. Participating in this, this is for those of us who this is our local church. You may pass the plates as we pass the plates. I always want to remind you that there's three different ways for you to give. We give uh, either when we pass the plates every Sunday. You could always give online by going to winbible.org slash give. Or for those of you worshiping with us from home, you could always send your offerings to the offices of the church. Now, today, this Sunday... As we continue to collect our offering, we also want to celebrate our Father's Day. So just by show of hands, how many of you guys have a father? <laughs> See, regardless of where you are in life, because you have a father, whether your father was amazing or not, we get to celebrate and we ought to celebrate Father's Day. Now, how many of you guys are fathers? Please raise your hand. All right, so I want to remind you that part of the reason, this is one of those cultural celebrations that we redeem as Christians for a simple reason, because to be a father is a, a great responsibility and something of great honor. So as a father myself, I know that the Lord called me to be responsible for my children. I know that the Lord called me to model what it means uh, to be a, a godly father. Uh, I know the Lord called me to be a, a servant to my family as a father. I know that the Lord called me to lead my, my, my family as a father. And I also know that the Lord called me to shepherd my family as a father. But this is the reason why I use those terms. Because at the end of the day, what makes this fatherhood important is that we get to reflect a little bit the father of fathers. Amen? So it's great responsibility. And therefore, we take it super serious. At the same time, we know that there is no perfect father. So we want to use this as an opportunity, if you are a father, to tell you that the good thing is that we have the ultimate father already. So you don't need to be a savior. We already have that one. But you get to reflect our beautiful savior with our fatherhood. Amen? Therefore, I want to pray for me, and I want to pray for you, because the responsibility the Lord has given us is important, and it has an effect in the people he has given us. Uh, he has given us. Amen? Let's pray. My beautiful Savior, we are so grateful for those of us that you have called us uh, to be fathers. What a, an amazing responsibility what an amazing gift, what an amazing honor, because at the end of the day, what we do as fathers is trying to reflect who you are just a little bit, or as much as we can. Lord, we are grateful, Lord, because there is, uh, there is this perfect image of a father that knows how to love and serve and sacrifice and protect and provide, which is the father that we got in Jesus Christ when, because of him, we are adopted into your family. And my desire, Lord, for me and the desire for the fathers here present, Lord, is that we get to uh, reflect you as much as we can. We are grateful, Lord, because this is a gift. We are grateful, Lord, because you are good. I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that you make of us the men that we ought to be. Knowing that it's never late to be the fathers that we ought to be. 
So please help us. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And we all say, Amen. about it, we give a random applause to the Father's Father presence. Now I'm going to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word as a sign of reverence to him. This reading is from Matthew 22nd, verses 15 to 40. If you're following your journals, page 126, you can follow with us. Let's read the word of, the word of God. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance to the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to, they, to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. And he asked them, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. That same day, the Sadducees, who said there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry their widow and raise up offspring for him. Now, there were seven men, seven uh, brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seventh, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not heard that God said to you, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teachings. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees and Pharisees to get God together, one of them, an expert of the law, tested him with his question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the, this is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, how's everyone doing? <clears throat> if you're visiting for the first time, my name is Hannibal. We are so glad that you are here. Uh, we are here to love you and serve you in any way we can. So please let us know if we can, how we can do that for you. And today we continue with our series in the Gospel of uh, Matthew. And we have been looking for the last few weeks, the last week of Jesus before he goes to the cross. And, and I, don't know if you know, I don't know if you noticed this already, but the closer Jesus gets to the cross... The more radical is the things he says, 
about himself and about everything. So the closer he gets to the cross, it's almost like he's, invite, like he's purposely forcing us to make a decision. To see that like him, there is no other. To see that he doesn't fit in our preconceptions. And to see that he comes to create something completely new. The closer he gets to the cross, the more we're going to see that like him, there is no other. That he doesn't fit any of our preconceptions. And that he came to create something completely new. And the text we have today is going to do just that. And it's not going to be controversial at all. He's going to talk about politics, <laughs> truth, and law. So these are the three points for today. Jesus and politics, Jesus and truth, and Jesus and law. So I need you to do me a favor. Look at the person next to you and say, this is about to get serious. Go ahead. So let's just start with the easiest or the simplest of these topics, Jesus and politics. Now, the tone of the sermon is going to be relaxed because the topic is not. So bear with me. So chapters 21 and 22 of the, of the Gospel of Matthew are happening when Jesus is still at the temple, the Gospel of Mark says. So Jesus overturned the tables. He confronts the religious leaders. And it is after that, within the temple, that Jesus is having all these conversations. Now, he's having these conversations inside the temple. Therefore, there, he's creating certain level of uneasiness uh, in the religious people of the time. And he's also creating certain level of uneasiness in the people with power at the time. And this is why in verse 15 we see this. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They're so upset. Verse 16. And they sent the disciples uh, to him along with the Herodians. Now this is super interesting because the Pharisees and the Herodians, they did not like each other. It will be something equivalent to Republicans and Democrats. I told you that the tone was going to be easy, right? They did not get along at all. And part of the reason is because obviously the Pharisees are more into, uh, you know, religion, right? And the Herodians, they like religion, but they like more politics and economy. But to go against Jesus, they come together. So Jesus is causing problems to everyone. The ones on the left and the ones on the right. The ones over here, the ones over here. And now they come together against him. And part of the reason why I know that this, part, this section of the text is about politics is because of the Herodians. You know, the name says that they are followers, or followers of Herod. Meaning, once again, that one, even though they care about religion and morality and all those things, they really care more about politics and economy. Now, the text says that they come together and the Herodians are interested in, uh, in trapping Jesus. Yeah, so you have to remember what, that, that what they want from Jesus is to lose followers uh, and to discredit Jesus in front of all the people that are there in the temple. Now, they start this conversation really interesting because they almost use uh, what I would call phony words. So they, they would say something like, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. 
We know that you teach the way of God. We know that you are not influenced by anybody. That's how the conversation starts. But then they said this, verse 17. Tell us then, what is your opinion? It is, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Listen, that's a brilliant question. These guys have been thinking about this question for a while. They know that this is, in their head, a lose-lose situation for Jesus. They know that if Jesus says, no, don't pay the taxes, he will be going against the government. If he says, no, don't pay the taxes to Caesar, then he is going to be perceived as a revolutionary as a, as, an, uh, as a rebel, as someone that does not appreciate the government. So they know that he can say no. But if Jesus says, yes, pay the taxes, now he is going against his own people. You have to remember that they are under the government of, of the Roman Empire, and the Romans have been people of oppression and abuse against the Jews. So if Jesus says, yeah, go ahead, pay the taxes. Now, all his fellow believers, if you will, would say, hold on a second, wait a minute, wait a minute. How do you call us to support a government that is not in favor of us? How do you call us to support a government that is a corrupted government? How do you call us to pay the taxes to an oppressing, oppressor government? So, listen, the text doesn't say this, but I could just imagine this guy's face, right? So, they, they, they pose the question, and in their heads, it's like, yes, we got him. He has, no, he has no way to answer this in any other way. I even picture the guys, like, high-fiving each other. Yes, we got him. Now, Jesus is complete. I mean, Jesus is Jesus. So, if the, if the question was brilliant... His answer is going to be even more brilliant. And he starts soft. He says, you hypocrites. <laughs> hypocrites is one of those words that it doesn't matter how nice they say it to you, still hurts. <laughs> You're such a hypocrite. He says, you hypocrites. You think you got me? You want to mess with me? He would never say that. I would say that. <laughs> Actually, he says something different in verse 19. Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought in up the denarius, which is a day's work. And he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Now, we know because of history that on one side of that coin, you got a picture, an image of Caesar. And the inscription of the coin says that he is the son of the divine Augustus. Meaning that on one side of the coin, says that Caesar is God. And the other side of the coin, there's a picture of a woman, which historians believe that this is probably the emperor's wife. And the inscription on the other says, the, the inscription on the other side says that he is the high priest. 
super interesting because Caesar is called God and priest at the same time. So when Jesus is asking the question, whose image is on that coin? He's asking the question, who does that coin belong to? So look at how they respond. Verse 21. Caesar's. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Now I have to break that one to you because these people thought about hours about that question. And Jesus is about to destroy the argument in two seconds. This is what he's saying. Look at the coin. Whose image is it? And they say, Caesar's. And then he says, well, give to Caesar what you got to give to Caesar. That's his coin. That's his money. That's his government. Go ahead. I have no issues honoring the government. If that coin belongs to the government, go ahead. No issues honoring the government. Isn't that his face? And then, yeah, that's his face. Okay, give him the money. There's no problem. You're paying the tax. He's actually saying something that we see throughout the Bible. Jesus is saying the same thing that Paul said in different places. The government is important. The government does play a role in this creation. In 1 Timothy, Paul says that we should pray for the people in the government. No issues there. In Titus 3, it says that citizens should submit to the authorities as long as they're not asking us to go against our own biblical beliefs. See, in 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, Peter says that we should submit to human institutions for the Lord's sake, meaning that one of the ways we give testimony to this broken world is by being obedient to the government. That's not the problem. Jesus is saying Christians ought to honor the government. But before you get too excited, don't stop where the Bible does not stop. Because Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God. You know what that means? Let me paraphrase it to you. Give the, mom, give the government your taxes. But do not treat politics and the government like if it's your God and your priest. Was that provocative enough? Give the government your taxes and honor it. But do not give it in your heart. Because your heart belongs to God. Give the government your taxes. But don't put your ultimate trust in the government. Church, I'm being super intentional about this. Because we are really close to elections again. And as a pastor, I want, I want you to remember that you have the right to have a political party that you have the right to support a political party, but that that political party could never, ever, 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 ever replace your commitment toward God. Only God is God. Only God is our priest, not no political party. Amen? Amen. Voting is important. Government is important. I believe that politics is important, but they are not God. Your ultimate alliance is toward God. 
not your political party. So before anybody sends me an email <laughs> or an anonymous letter, if you're going to argue this, make sure that you use the Bible. Amen? I'm just trying to self, try self myself a little bit of a headache there. What's the lesson? Do not confuse politics with the gospel. Give to Caesar what Caesar deserves. But don't give him your heart. Don't give him your heart. So we want answer. Jesus tells the religious leaders, I think that God is very important. More important than the government. But to the Herodians, he says, I think that the, important, that the government is important, just not more important than God. That's why he said that Jesus in this last chapter shows us that there's no one like him. That he doesn't fit in our preconceptions. That he comes to create something completely new. This is part of the reason why Jesus says that his kingdom is not of this world. Amen? He doesn't stop there because he gets better. Point number two. Jesus and truth. Now, after Jesus is having these conversations with the Pharisees and the Herodians, and they talk about politics and religion and all that stuff, right? Um, another group of people approaches Jesus. And these are the Sadducees. And the Sadducees are not going to talk about politics or economy. They're going to talk about theology. They're going to they're talk about truth. So look at what happens in verse 23. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Now, we've got to stop there. Because we have to know that the Sadducees was a religious group, that, they, that the tendency was to hyper-focus in the Pentateuch, in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They actually believed that the first five books of the Bible were the most important books ever, and nothing else mattered. The problem, though, is that as they're studying the, the first five books of the Bible, they cannot see how the first five books of the Bible ever talk about the resurrection. Therefore, they did not believe in the resurrection. So when they're approaching Jesus with this resurrection question, you have to know that part of the reason why they're asking Jesus a resurrection question is not because they want to learn. It's because they already do not believe in the resurrection. So they use this law that Moses had given in Deuteronomy chapter 25. I have to explain it to you really quick. In this law, um, well, before we do that, it's important that we keep in mind that there's a huge difference between modern times and biblical times. In modern times, we put the individual before we put the community. That's a thing. So it's my happiness, my desires, my dreams, my things before the community. But in traditional cultures like the biblical times, they would always put the community before the individual. So there are a ton of laws that in modern times would not make any sense to us. And it only makes sense if you understand that every law, everything they did was for the sake of the community. So Moses had written this law that said that if I as a man was married, and I die, my brother Miguel would have to marry Heidi. Yeah. How many of you guys feel uncomfortable with that? <laughs> but remember, 
the end of the day, this marriage thing was not just about personal happiness or romanticism or Miguel couldn't even say, well, we're not compatible. That's a modern, modern concept, by the way. No, no, no. In that context and in that time and in a traditional culture, the only reason why that was there is because then my brother has the responsibility to marry my wife, Heidi, to protect her, to provide for her, and to preserve the family line. His brother and his community came before his own happiness. Super interesting. And the lady would not complain because she knew that her protection, her provision, and the family line of her past husband was still very important. Can you see how different we are? Now the Sadducees know that law. And they know that Jesus know that law. So it's one of those things in which they spend hours and hours thinking, how is it that we're going to get Jesus? So look at what happens in verse 24. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now, when you keep on reading, it says that they created this scenario. It's not a real life thing. It's they created it. They made up this story in which they say this, Hannibal dies, and then Heidi has to marry my brother Miguel. But then Miguel dies. And then Heidi needs to marry our third brother. And then our third brother dies, and he goes that way until all seven brothers dies. It's almost like a Disney movie, man. It's almost like if, like if um, Snow White gets married to Dopey. <laughs> and then Dopey dies. And then she gets married to Grumpy, and Grumpy dies. And then Sneezy, and Sneezy dies. And then Bashful, and Bashful dies. And then Happy, and Happy dies. Fine, finally, the very last brother is Sleepy. But, but this guy falls asleep driving, man. So he gets into an accident, and he also dies. <laughs> so once again, these guys here are like, yes, we got it. <laughs> High-fiving all these things. And they think, man, we really got him, because if he believes in the resurrection, the question is this, verse 28. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Now, we could talk about uh, how Jesus went against polygamy. We could talk about all of that stuff. And Jesus could have made those arguments, you know? But he chooses not to. Because he chooses to confront them in a different way. Remember, these guys are experts in the first five books of the Bible. And they think they got Jesus. And look at how Jesus responds. Verse 29. You are in error. Because you don't know two things. You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. 
And that answer is brilliant. Even more brilliant than the first group of people. Brilliant. Because first, he's going to correct their theology. You know how crazy it is for someone that is an expert in the Bible and a nobody, quote-unquote, comes to you and fixes your theology? So look at what it says in verse 30. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. So Jesus, with one statement, says, what are you talking about? Why are we talking about the seven brothers and marriage and who's going to be later? Why are we talking about it? Don't you see that the Bible says that in heaven we are not going to be married, that we are going to be like angels? There's not going to be marriage. So if you're married, enjoy your marriage here. You will not have it there. And for some people, it's like, thanks God. That's because your marriage is in really bad shape. Marriage is a foretaste of that marriage in which you will never need any more, quote-unquote, need any more one another. So Jesus says, I have no idea what you're talking about. You don't know your Bible. You thought you knew your Bible. You don't know your Bible. You will not be married in heaven. That question makes no sense. No wife will be married to Jesus. That's it. Now, can you imagine what these guys are feeling? And then he says, haven't you read? He's about to fix the second problem. And he quotes in verse 32, the most important verse, popular verse at that time in that context for that people. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And he quotes Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. And if you know anything about your Bible, that's when, Jesus showed, uh, that's when God shows up to a, uh, Moses right before he goes into the promised land. Every Sadducee will note that verse. Because it's one of the most important events in the Old Testament. This is how God is revealing himself to Moses before he goes into Egypt to deliver his people. And I find this amazing because Jesus could have used different arguments. He could have said, you think that the, that the God that creates the world by the power of his word cannot resurrect a dead person? He could have used that. He could have used examples or words that Daniel said, Job said, Isaiah said, that talks about the resurrection, but he doesn't do that. He chooses a very familiar text that they think they know. Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. Why would Jesus use that text? See, when God shows himself to Moses, he shows himself as a covenant God. This is what he was going to give security to Moses as he's going to this place. I have a God that makes a covenant with me. He will be with me and he will never ever walk away. That's covenant. What is interesting, though, is that these people thought that the promises and the covenant of God, they're bound only when you are alive. And when Jesus is using that text, which is, by the way, in the present, not in the past, but in the present, he's saying our covenant God is going to be with us when we are alive and when we are dead. 
And the only reason why it is in the present is because then there will be one time in which everyone will be resurrected and that covenant will continue. That was the whole argument. The covenant of God that is not bound just when we are alive. God is making a covenant with us even after we die and we resurrect. That covenant continues for eternity. Now the Sadducees are hearing this. And once again, they have read that text who knows how many times. You know what the problem was? That they had already made a decision that the resurrection was not a thing. In their preconceptions, they had already made a decision that the resurrection was not real. And that happens to many people all the time. Part of the reason why we have such a hard time accepting and believing some truths of the Bible is because we have already made a decision that that couldn't be true. So this is the problem with modern-day Christianity. The things that bother you about Jesus and the things that bother you about the gospel and the things that bother you about the Bible is not because it's not true. It's because you have already made a decision that it couldn't be true. And Jesus says, you have to let God define what is truth and what is not. Not you, not me. He defines what is truth and what is not. Listen up, church. And the only way you get to see it is when you choose to believe even before you understand. When you choose to believe even before you understand. How many of you guys remember uh, the movies uh, Indiana Jones? That's all my people. There's a new one coming up, I think. But there's, in one of the movies, there's this, this scene in which Indiana Jones is supposed to go through this chasm, this, this gap, right? And he's like super profound. He's all down there. And, he, and there's a sign that says, Steps out, step out in faith. So he sees the hole, and he's frozen by fear because there's just a hole. And he doesn't understand why the sign says, step out in faith. And it's super cool how they see it in the movie because finally at the end, he has to trust what that says. You have to trust that that is true. In order for you to see, you have to trust that that is true. So he steps out like this and stands in something that looked exactly the same way as the hole. So he moves to the side and he sees that there's a little path that looks exactly the same way as the hole. So you just couldn't see it. I've never forgotten that image because that's exactly what trusting the truth of God looked like. You must choose to believe before you understand. It is only when you believe that you understand. The problem of the Sadducees is that they have chosen not to believe even though the text was there. So what's the lesson? Only God defines what is true and what is not. And we only get to see it if we step out in faith, even before you understand it. Amen?
So that's Jesus and politics, Jesus and truth, and it gets better. Jesus and law. So this is almost like round, round three, like round three. Right? First, the first group talks about politics and economy. Comes the second group, and they talk about religion and theology. Right? And then we come here, and he's going to talk about law. So it is the Pharisees that come back to Jesus, and look at what happens in verse 34. So the Pharisees got together, and verse 35 says that one of them, an expert of the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, I want you to stop there for a second. And notice the question. What is the greatest commandment in the law? See, they're doing the same thing that they did before. So they are grabbing something that is biblical in a sense, right? And they're trying to use that biblical thing to trick Jesus or to make Jesus lose followers. So scholars believe that they're talking about the Ten Commandments and the implications they had created about the Ten Commandments. So the, so the uh, Pharisees had created, I think it was 613 commandments that in their minds were flowing out of the Ten Commandments. Now, if you remember the Ten Commandments, you got four and six, right? The first four has to do with our relationship with God and the, and the bottom six has to do with our relationship with one another. But they know how, how humanity works and humanity think. Because if Jesus would say, wait, well, let me tell you, out of these commandments, this is the greatest commandment. What would happen to the rest of the people? Hold on a second. I think that this commandment is greater than that one. Once again, these guys have been thinking about that forever. And they think that they got Jesus. Not only because they think and they know how Jesus is going to respond, but because they know that human beings have preferences. See, I think that everyone here, including the pastor here, we all have preferences in terms of laws and in terms of sins. Let me make it more clear. I think that all humanity... We tend to elevate some laws more than others, and we tend to elevate some sins more than others. Samuel Berry, which is a pastor and an author, he says this, the church tends to elevate the sins of the minority and excuse the sins of the, ma the majority. If you're honest, as I'm trying to be honest with myself, we do create categories. There are laws that we really love, and there are laws that we don't like, and there are sins we hate more than other sins. So Samuel Berry's argument, which I think is true, is that as we elevate the sins of the minorities, we have excuse as Christians, greed, abusive power, domestic violence, and pornography. Do you know why the, the Pharisees are asking that question like that? Because they do the same thing. They know how 
humanity works? Because they are like that. They have categories of law and categories of sin. There are some laws that they think are more important than others and some sins that are unforgivable and, and other sins that are excusable. You know how I know that? This is something that I've used before, but I'm going to uh, bring it back again. You remember the time in which they caught this woman in adultery? What did they do with that woman? They took it to Jesus, right? And then they said this, didn't Moses tell us that if a person is caught up in, a, in, in adultery, we should stone that person to death? You know what's interesting about that? That that law says that you're supposed to bring the men and the women together and both supposed to be executed. But I find it super interesting that the Pharisees only chose the woman. Ain't that interesting? How do they make that distinction? So Jesus' answer is brilliant. Because he's got the woman next to him. And he says to them, those of you that are free of sin, throw the stone. You know what that means? If you think that her sins are worse than yours, throw the stone. What does the text say? One by one, starting with the oldest, they walked away. You know why you're starting with the oldest? Because the older you are, the more sins you have. Now, people will say, oh, you see, so Jesus excused her sin. No, 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 no. She, he turned around and said to her, he, they didn't condemn you. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Can you see how the Pharisees also had a dichotomy and had created categories between the law and sin? I think that one of our worst sins as Christians is when we do that. Because from God's perspective... All law is important, and all sins are hideous. You don't get to create categories. I don't get to create categories. How do I know that that's what Jesus wants to show us? Because of the way he responds in verses 37 to 39. Look at what he says. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And you would say, you see, only the first four. And then in verse 39, he says, and the second is like it. The word like there is similar of one mind or in agreement. And the second one is like if one mind, one mind, love your neighbor as yourself, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So in this answer, he gives them three things. And it's the things that I want you to remember as much as you can. You don't get to create categories of law nor sin. Don't separate what the Lord has not separated. Our love for God and our love for our neighbors come together. All laws are important and all sin is hideous. Number two, don't think that you can separate your love for God from your love from others. And don't think that you can love others if you don't know how to love God. That's what Jesus brings them together. How could we possibly love somebody created in the image of God if we cannot love the one that, whose image they reflect? And vice versa. And number three, at the end of the day, 
This is what they missed. And this is why they have categories of loss and sin. Because at the end of the day, it's all about love. See, whatever the Lord is asking us to do is because he wants us to love him more. And the only reason why we've got to love our brothers is because that's what it means to be a person of love. So let me go back to something that I said during communion. Why such a high emphasis on love? Because only love changes people. See, he's asking us to love him more and asking us to love our neighbors more because love only Love is the only thing that changes people. And because we can only love when we understand that we have been loved. That was the whole point. See, how do we keep politics in its place? When we know that we have been loved first in Jesus Christ. And when we know that we have been loved in Jesus Christ, then we learn to love God more and love others more. We do that before we love politics more. So when we are voting, we are not voting for the things that we think are best. We are voting for whatever is going to give glory more and is going to be good for humanity the most. You know, that's a problem because you're not going to find that fully in any political party. How do we learn to submit to him more? How do we learn to submit to his truth more? When we understand that he has loved us first and therefore we got to love God more and we love our brothers more, much more than what we love our own ideas and definition of truth. And how do we keep ourselves from having categories of law and sin? Simple. Learn to love what he loves and hate what he hates. Learn to love what he loves and hates what he hates. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, talking about politics is complicated. Talking about truth is complicated. And talking about law is complicated. Lord, but we are grateful that we can understand, Lord, that politics is important, that truth is super important, and that the law is extremely important. Please, Lord, please help us to be people that put politics in the right place, believe the truths that we find in the Bible, and we learn to love you and others as much as you have loved us. Because at the end of the day, this is the reason why Jesus went to the cross. He went to the cross because he chose to love you, Father, first. And us as a result of that. And because he chose to love us, even when he had to lose it all. Please help us understand Believe and surrender to that. And we pray for all this in the name of Jesus and the churches.
We respond to the message today with this is my father's world. We put him in his rightful place and we love him. Let's stand and worship. Jesus Christ guarantees for us. This comes from Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that his ways may be known on earth and his salvation among all the nations. And the church says, Amen. thanks for coming church. We love you. You are sent. Happy Father's Day.